welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We have been in the last few weeks involved in what we call our summer series. Um, We have decided to change the name and we have changed it to we think summer might still be coming series. But what we've been doing, uh, in the mornings we've been looking at great historical revivals and in the evenings we've been doing a series that we've called uh, Big Messages from Small Books. So the morning we've been looking, as I say, at historical revivals. Um, When Donald said we're going to come back and we're going to be in the Word, normally that is our custom. We are normally in the Scriptures and expounding um, some passage or theme. Uh, In this series, it is a little more uh, looking at history rather than opening the Bible, although, of course, uh, in the first message of this series, that's exactly what we did. But last week, uh, Chris talked about the Welsh revival, and uh, this morning I want to continue that theme. Now, some of you may be wondering, you know, Don, why, why bother with that stuff? I mean, actually, who cares about history? I hated history at school. I'm not interested at all. However, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will be aware that the people of God were constantly told to remember. Uh, Passage after passage, prophet after prophet called them to remember. And effectively, in that call, what God is saying, remember your history, remember what God has done in days gone by. Why? Because it reminds us of what he can still do, what he can do in our day and in our time. And so that's why we are looking at this series, not just historical interest, but to stir in us a sense of this is the God we serve. This is what God has done. This is what God can do. This morning, I want to look at a period that is called by many, at least American historians anyway, the Great Awakening. Uh, English historians are possibly more liable to call it the evangelical awakening. They are talking pretty much about the same period of time. It's a season of revival that dramatically affected both Great Britain and the 13 American colonies that hugged the Atlantic coast. The time period is 1730s through to about the 1770s, although the revival's height was probably between 1730 and 1740. And in the time that we have this morning, I want to focus our attention around the three foremost figures of that season of revival. Obviously, we can only look at them in a very superficial way. Each of those three people deserve actually probably a series of messages such was their impact on their times. Um, While it isn't always true, more often than not, revivals do coalesce around particular leaders or a leader that God raises up in and for that season. Um, The great writer on prayer, E.M. Bounds, probably sums it up best when he said this. He said, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men and women. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use, men and women of prayer, men and women mighty in power and prayer. 
The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men and women. He does not come upon machinery, but on men and women. He does not anoint plans, but men and women, men and women of prayer. So revival often coalesces around a particular figure, sometimes men, sometimes women. The Great Awakening coalesced around three incredibly giant figures, really. John Wesley, George Whitfield, the Britons, and Jonathan Edwards, the American. There were, of course, other key figures. There's always a backstory to events. And, uh, you know, one of the real challenges in doing a study like we are doing is deciding where you break into the chain links of history. Because in order to really understand the Great Awakening, one probably needs to study the Moravians of Hernhunt in Germany and their leader, Count von Zinzendorf, because he had an incredible impact on, on Wesley in particular, and then the Great Awakening as a result of uh, Wesley. Obviously, the reality is that time prohibits, so we're breaking in with, with Wesley. Now, one of the features of revival, if you look at it, study it through history, is that they often seem to be preceded by times of incredible spiritual and moral and social decay. It seems to be this black background against which God delights to work. You know, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, verse 126, it says, it's time for you, Lord, to work, for they have made void your law. The psalmist is actually saying, look, it's reached a point of desperation. It is the time for you to step in. And then in Isaiah 59, verse 19, it says, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Actually, that's an interesting verse because apparently in Hebrew, there is no punctuation. So where you put the comma in that particular verse changes the meaning. It changes who is actually the flood. You can read it, when the enemy comes in like a flood, comma, then the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Or you could read it, when the enemy comes in, then like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And, and it's just a matter of interpretation. Revival seasons are flood seasons where God, it seems, says, that is enough, I'm gonna move. And, and he does so. As you study revival both in the Bible and history, there is often this dark backdrop of decay behind it. Just before the outbreak of revival in King Asa's time, in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, it reads like this, message translation, at that time it was a dog-eat-dog world. Life was constantly up for grabs. No one, regardless of country, knew what the next day might bring. Nation battered nation, city pummeled city. God let loose every kind of trouble among them. That was that was the backdrop. And certainly, this dark backdrop was true before the Great Awakening took place. Great Britain was, in fact, anything but great. Conditions were deplorable. Sylvester Horn, in his book, The Popular History of the Free Church, wrote, the whole population seemed given over to an orgy of drunkenness, which made the very name of Englishmen to stink in the nostrils of other nations. The gin craze, as it was sometimes called, gripped the nation, and it's estimated that one in every six houses in London was a gin shop. A common sign outside public houses at the time was drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, straw to lie on. Gambling was a national pastime, morals were corrupt, or perhaps more correctly, non-existent. 
The police force was corrupt and self-serving. The poor were unspeakably wretched. Work conditions were inhumane. I was just talking with John before the service and we were talking about this situation and at this time, women were employed in the coal mines. They were harnessed up and they crawled on their hands and knees dragging the coal trucks behind them. That, that was how women were employed. And you know, the biggest problem with stopping that was an economic issue. We will have to make the shafts wider and taller if we're going to use ponies. This isn't good economic sense. Some things never change, do they? Anyway, the conditions were inhumane. Sports were brutal and cruel. Hangings were a gala event that people took a picnic lunch to to watch. And the church, through the meanwhile, was crippled with spiritual decay. One man who was asked to be a bishop turned it down and said, the church is too far gone ever to recover. The few godly Puritans that did exist at the time had largely been driven out and had sailed for America. Bible-believing Baptists were, by law, not allowed to live within seven miles of a city or a village. True believers were isolated and marginalized. It really was time for God to act, come in like a flood and raise up a standard, and he did. Samuel Wesley was an unremarkable clergyman who was married to a remarkable woman called Susanna. Susanna was the 25th child of her parents. They had rather large families in those days. She was number 25. She married Samuel at age 19 and proceeded to have 19 of her own children in the 21 years that they were married, nine of which died in infancy. The 15th child, a boy, was named John. He was born on the 17th of June, 1703. When he was six, he was saved from a second-story window of their house after a fire engulfed the premises. And forever after, he referred to himself, in the words of Zechariah 3.2, a brand plucked from the fire. Actually, the Wesley household was burned down twice, once by irate church members who couldn't abide John's father. I'm glad that people can email, okay? <laughs> Please continue your emails. Just leave the house alone, okay? Now, as a young man, uh, John went to Oxford to study. He interrupted his studies for a while and came back to actually serve as a curate for his father in his father's congregation. He was, by all accounts, a very spiritually sensitive young man. After a time serving as curate, he returned to Oxford. He formed a, a small group of like-minded men, which included his younger brother, Charles, and another man by the name of George Whitfield. These men intended to be very, very serious about their spiritual journey. The other students at Oxford derisively called them the Holy Club or Methodists because of their strict method of life. They were very devout, very aesthetic. They practiced fasting, self-denial. They visited the poor, the sick, those in prisons. They met every night, severely examining themselves as to their conduct regarding that day and partaking of communion. Now, in spite of this rigorous discipline, all of them were spiritually unfulfilled and completely lacking any sense of personal salvation. Apparently an opportunity arose in the colony of Georgia in America for a clergyman who would conduct services among the settlers and the Indians. John decided to go, talked his brother Charles into going with him, and they set sail for America. He said of this trip, my chief motive is the saving of my own soul. 
He spent two and a half years in Georgia, and it was, by and large, an unmitigated disaster. His rigorous asceticism and his rigid high churchmanship made him incredibly unpopular with his parishioners. Um, During the time, he fell in love with a young lady in the congregation. Her name was Sophie Hopke. She apparently reciprocated the feelings, but John waited so long to declare his intentions that she tired of waiting and married another. John was heartbroken and thought he would die of grief. He even wrote out his will in case he did. Petulantly, he refused to marry the couple on a technicality, and when they married anyway, he refused them communion on the basis of her hypocrisy. He was asked to to explain, and he said, well, she's a hypocrite. She loved me, and she married him. (laughs) As you can imagine, that caused quite a stir and served really only to increase his already well-established unpopularity. The aggrieved couple brought a lawsuit against him for the defamation of their character, and John decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and he fled the colonies. He said of this period of his life, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? He was on the way home, strongly influenced by some Moravians, which is the group that I mentioned before. Their simple faith and their calm with which they conducted themselves during a very severe storm on the journey home deeply impressed him. He began to talk to them, in particular he talked to one Peter Bowler about how he could get what they obviously had. He contemplated giving up preaching altogether until he could get faith. Peter Bowler suggested that he preached faith until he got it. It was shortly after that that both he and Charles were soundly converted. Charles was converted several days before John, but on May the 24th, 1738, at a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London, a meeting that John had only gone to, excuse me, reluctantly, he said someone was reading the preface of Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, and he said, at 8.45, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and an assurance was given to me that he had, in fact, taken away my sins." So after a long and very painful struggle, light had come to John Wesley. He now had a gospel to preach, and he made no delay in doing so with immediate and rather dramatic effects. Before we look at the effects overall, let me introduce you to the second great remarkable figure of the awakening, uh, one that also emerged from this little holy club, and his name was George Whitfield. Ten years younger than John Wesley, he was born in 1714. He was the youngest of seven children. His mother, who had been widowed, married again, divorced, uh, she owned a public house called the Bells Inn. And apparently as a youngster, um, George served in that inn. He loved the theater. And even as a boy, it says, he read his plays insatiably and often skipped school to practice his schoolboy performances. Later in his life, he also went to Oxford, putting himself through college by serving older and wealthier students. There he met the Wesleys and became part of the pious group of Methodists. Now, he was converted before either Charles or John, and he experienced what he called a highly personal and profoundly emotional new birth. He turned to preaching. And over the next couple of decades proved to be probably one of history's greatest Bible expositors. In a, uh, sorry, preachers, not an expositor, a preacher. 
In a day when preaching tended to be controlled, dignified, pseudo-intellectual, and perhaps even stuffy, Whitfield was intense, dramatic, emotional, and passionate. And he immediately enthralled his audiences. Wherever he spoke, crowds materialized. He apparently had a prodigious memory for character and dialogue, and it enabled him to transform the pulpit into sacred theater. He would often weep as he preached, and when asked why he did that, he said, you blame me for weeping? How can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves, though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? His fame spread quickly. David Garrick, who was a British actor, one of the greatest actors of the time, said that Whitfield could reduce an audience to tears by the way he pronounced Mesopotamia. He said, I would give a hundred guineas if I could only say, oh, like Whitfield does. Hume, the historian, said he would ride gladly 20 miles to hear Whitfield speak. Jealousy among the clergy meant that more and more churches closed their doors to the young Whitfield. He totally shocked people of his time, including the Wesleys, who were totally unconvinced about this innovative approach. Um, he, he began preaching in the open air. Oh my goodness. And that day, that was unheard of. He started by preaching to coal miners in the open fields near Bristol. First morning, apparently, about, 20, uh, about 200 coal miners stopped, stopped to listen to him. Within two months, there were between 20 and 30,000 miners every day gathering to hear this young man with the golden voice and the authority from heaven. Now, you've got to think about this. They had no amplification. You imagine preaching to a crowd of 30,000 people without a microphone. Um, Benjamin Franklin was later to say that with regularity in the colonies, he did that and everybody heard him. He convinced a very reluctant John Wesley to ultimately join him in the open air and also preach with him. Wesley finally acquiesced and began also preaching to crowds in the open air with equally spectacular results. Now, Whitfield got an opportunity, an invitation to go to the American colonies on a preaching tour in 1738. He was an immediate and a spectacular success. He was really the catalyst for the American Great Awakening. Vast crowds, often exceeding the population of the town in which he was preaching, gathered to hear him. He became America's first celebrity. 80% of Americans heard uh, Whitfield preach at least once in their lives. He made 13 trips across the Atlantic to preach in the American colonies, and you've got to remember, each trip took between eight and 10 weeks on a ship. William Cowper, the famous hymn writer, called Whitfield the wonder of the age. Benjamin Franklin, the American who, while not at all sharing Whitfield's faith, was deeply impressed by him, and they ultimately became firm friends. Amusingly, Franklin tells a story in his autobiography about attending one of Whitfield's meetings. He said, I perceived he intended to finish with a collection. Some things never change, by the way. Although to say, in Whitfield's defense, the collection was for an orphanage in Georgia that he had started, which was America's first charity. But anyway, Franklin said, I resolved that he would get nothing from me. 
Apparently, he thought the orphanage was ill-planned, and he told Wesley so, uh, Whitfield so, and he refused to give it any support. He said, I had in my pocket a handful of copper coins, three or four silver dollars, and five gold coins. As he proceeded, I began to soften, and I concluded I would give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and I decided to give him the silver. He finished off so admirably that I emptied my pockets wholly into the collection dish, gold and all. He was a spellbinding orator, born and gifted with what it seems capital C charisma. Now, the cool thing is that he knew he'd been called to sow seeds. He didn't try and do anything else. He did what he was gifted to do tirelessly. And it's estimated that he preached to more than 10 million people in his lifetime. Now, that's Stunning given the population of that time. The American colonies at this time was less than five million people. That a man at that time without any form of amplification would preach to 10 million people is breathtaking. It was on these trips to America that Whitfield became firm friends with the third key figure of the Great Awakening. This was the American Jonathan Edwards. Edwards and Wesley were born in the same year. 1703, three months apart with Wesley being the older. The two never met face to face, but they became great admirers of each other through their printed works and through the mutual friendship that they shared with George Whitfield. Like Wesley, Edward's father was also a clergyman. Like Wesley, he came from a large family. He was the fifth child of 11. There were five girls, then George, and then another five girls. He was, by his own admission, shy, introverted, and somewhat socially awkward, whether it was the number of girls in the family, that, who knows. He was possessed, however, by a prodigious intellect. He was a published author by the time that he was 11. He graduated, uh, he entered Yale University at age 13. He graduated valedictorian with an MA by the time he was 20. Along the road, he was soundly converted at age 17. He entered the ministry and was called to be pastor scholar in residence at his grandfather's church in a village called Northampton, Massachusetts. His father, Solomon Stoddard, probably had the largest church in the colonies at that time, and it was a church that had seen significant seasons of revival. But those revival seasons had waned, and when Edwards arrived in Northampton, he said um, the church was nothing more than dry bones. Now, as an aside, um, and we'll touch on this a bit later, Edwards married apparently a very lovely and very godly young woman called Sarah Pirapoint in July 1778. She was 17, he was 24. Whenever I talk about a wedding or go to a wedding, I don't know if this is your experience, guys, but when I come home, my wife all, always says, what did she wear? And I always say, well, I always used to say, who? <laughs> which gives you some idea of my ignorance. And she'd say, the bride, you goose. And I would say, oh, uh, uh, a dress? <laughs> oh, a, a white dress. So I know when I'm saying she was 17, he was 24, they got married, I know the ladies are saying, but what did she wear? Well, I'll tell you, a boldly patterned green satin brocade. <laughs> now, guys, Ask for the interpretation of tongues when you get home. I don't, I've got a clue what a brocade is. I know green. But there you go. Now, unlike the other two figures, 
Edwards actually had a very, very happy marriage. He was married for 30 years. They had 11 children, eight girls and three boys. Actually, an amusing aside. Of their 11 children, the first four were all born on a Sunday. And that caused the people of his parish in Northampton to enjoy some merriment at their pastor's expense, since folklore of the time had it that children were born on the same day of the week that they were conceived. And the suggestion was that there was not too much Sabbath rest going on in the Edwards household in those first few years. At his grandfather's death, Edwards became the pastor of the church at Northampton. And in 1734, he preached a series of sermons on the subject justification by faith. Now, Edwards was a very careful, very considered, very logical preacher, quite unlike the incredibly dramatic Whitfield. But the results of his sermons were nonetheless stunning. Apparently, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully and revival quickly began to impact the church and then the community of Northampton. The population of the village at that time was approximately 1,000 people. Within six months, 300 of them had been added to the already existing church. Deep conviction gripped the people, and that was followed by great rejoicing when they came into the light, so much so that Edwards spoke of the village of, as being both heaven and hell, full of inexpressible joy in those that were saved and terrible conviction and mourning among those who weren't. Now, as with the revivals that were to follow both Wesley and Whitfield, people were not only affected emotionally but often physically during the revival. They, they cried out, they shook, they fell to the ground, they jerked, they went through all manner of physical manifestations. And those phenomenon created then, as they do now, Tremendous opposition and criticism. Edwards defended the um, awakening quite brilliantly, finding a delicate and scholarly balance between not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit's movings, and yet at the same time not encouraging those who gave place to excessive and perhaps even carnal enthusiasm. Now, news of the Northampton outpouring spread quickly. Those who could came to investigate, and many of them left, converted, rejoicing, and spreading the message even further. Those who couldn't come wrote to Edwards and asked him about the revival. So many people wrote that in answer to the many requests, he published an account, and it was called a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundreds of souls in Northampton and its surrounding villages, 1730 to 1740. In those days, a title of a book actually gave you a summary of the contents. Of course, that's changed over the years. Titles don't do that any longer. Gone with the Wind is not about meteorology and Water Under the Bridge is not about hydrology. It's, it's all changed. The book was published throughout the colonies and then translated or transferred over into Britain where it was also published and it lit a spark in people who also longed to see revival in their area. And that's one of the things that happened and one of the purposes for this series. It seems that often the telling of revival stimulates faith in others and it can lead to further revival. Now, the revival in Northampton under Edwards as all revivals do, which is why we call them seasons, waned. But it burst back into flames with the visit of George Whitfield to the colonies in the 1740s. 
These two giants, Whitfield and Edwards, met and became firm friends. Whitfield was deeply impressed with Edwards. He said, I found no one like him in all of New England. He was equally impressed with Sarah. And he said, she caused me to renew my prayers for a wife. A sweeter couple I have not yet seen, he said. Now, the admiration was clearly mutual. Edwards sat and wept as Whitfield preached, and Sarah experienced an incredible visitation of God on her life that lasted several weeks, even into months. And Jonathan was later to chronicle that visitation on his wife's life. As as the Great Awakening gripped uh, the colonies and spread, Edwards became one of its key defenders and proponents. While he encouraged it, at the same time, he acknowledged and sought actively to correct its excesses. While on a preaching tour himself, he preached in a little village called Enfield, and he preached probably the sermon for which he is most famously remembered. And if you've heard anything about Jonathan Edwards, you've probably heard about this sermon title. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And its effects were dramatic. Uh, The congregation wept. Grown men cried out. Some of them were holding on to the pews and the pillars in the church for fear that they were slipping into this hell that Edwards was describing. In, in one respect, it's probably a great shame that that's all that people know about Edwards. Um, he's been characterized as a classic, classic bigoted hellfire and brimstone preacher who took great delight in seeing the lost shunted off into hell. In actual fact, nothing could be further from the truth. It was a one-off sermon. If you read his works, you'll find Edwards much more taken with the beauty of God's love and character than he was with the lot of the lost, those that rejected God. You know, ultimately and ironically, after the season of revival waned, Edwards was actually voted out of the church at Northampton by the congregation after serving them for 23 years. Doctrinal issues over the Lord's Supper, classic church politics, and not a few unforgiven grudges won the day. He went off to be a missionary to the Mohican Indians in a little frontier town of Stockbridge, where he served for several years before accepting a role to be president of what was to become Princeton University. Almost immediately after becoming the president, Edwards, who was a strong supporter of the smallpox inoculation, decided to get inoculated himself in order to encourage others to do the same. Unfortunately, never having been in robust health, he actually died as a result of the inoculation on March 22nd, 1758. Three spiritual giants. Let me make a few observations as we wind it to a close about these giants of the faith. Firstly, how different they were from each other in temperament and gifting. God doesn't make chocolate soldiers. He is quite happy with the incredible diversity of our personalities, of our giftedness. Whitfield was an evangelist, an evangelist par excellence, a man full of fire and thunder and passion. Edwards is at the other end of the scale, almost melancholic, thoughtful, measured, logical, a philosopher. Some have suggested perhaps one of America's greatest, uh, by far a pastor theologian. Wesley, a man of steely, intense determination, had an apostolic genius for government. 
He wasn't the orator that Whitfield was, and while he was certainly no slug intellectually, he probably didn't have the intellectual prowess of Edwards. That, by the way, was no shame. Not many at that time did, and not many since. Wesley, because of his organizational gifting, probably left the greatest legacy of the three. In fact, what he left behind is almost unique in revival history the Methodist movement. At his death in 1791, his followers numbered nearly 80,000 in the UK and another 40,000 in the colonies. By 1957, there were 40 million Methodists worldwide. Very, very different. Secondly, they were different in their theological persuasions. Wesley, uh, sorry, Whitfield and Edwards were Calvinists. Wesley was an Arminian. Now, I'm not gonna take time to explain those terms, sufficient to say that those two camps haven't always been kind to one another, and probably that's the understatement of the century. Yet their friendship, while it was strained by the differences at time, nevertheless lasted. They were all large enough in heart to be able to refuse to be divided. They remained firm friends to the end. We could learn a lot from them. If there was a Calvinist chapel in a village, Wesley would not open a Methodist one, and vice versa. Wesley was ultimately asked to preach the funeral sermon at George Whitfield's funeral and gladly did so. Thirdly, when you look at their lives, there were very different domestic arrangements and and, um, the way they did family was dramatically different probably stemming from their judgment or lack thereof concerning the woman in their lives. I've already said the Edwards' relationship and therefore their house was a warm, loving, healthy, and happy one. Actually, a fascinating study was done by a sociologist. He followed for 150 years the descendants of um, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. He said among them, there was one US vice president, three US senators, three state governors, three mayors, three college presidents, 30 judges, 65 university professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers and 100 missionaries. They obviously continued the large families, I suspect. But it gives a whole new insight in that passage in Proverbs where it says a godly man leaves a legacy for his children. John Wesley was a disaster with women. He was too late with Sophie Hopke. He intended to marry Grace Murray, a young woman who nursed him during a time of illness. But him and Charles had made an agreement that they wouldn't marry without running their plans by each other. Charles was not impressed with um, Grace Murray and scuttled the whole deal. He took her off and married her off quickly to another Methodist pastor. So that was that gone. Well, the next woman that he was drawn to, John was drawn to, was a well-to-do widow and mother of four children named Mary Valzeal. Because of the previous debacle with Charles, he didn't tell Charles, <laughs> which is probably a big mistake. Um, Wesley married Molly, as she was known, in, in 1751. By 1758, she had left him, unable to cope 
um, with the competition for his time and devotion that was created by this ever-burgeoning Methodist movement. Molly was to return and leave him again on numerous occasions before their final separation. In 1771, Molly announced that she was leaving John. On 23rd of January, Wesley's journal reports, for what cause I know not to this day, my wife set out for Newcastle, proposing never to return. I did not leave her, I did not send her away, I will not call her back. I tell you, Wesley may have been a giant, but he, was, he, he had clay feet. Whitfield was only marginally better than Wesley in this department. He married uh, Elizabeth James, a Welsh widow that he barely knew. Now, how he came to marry this woman is seriously, um, this is a story worthy of a plot in Shortland Street. Elizabeth James was in love with another man by the name of Hal Harris, who was a Welsh preacher who was also incredibly, experiencing incredible revival at this time. Hal also loved her, but he thought their relationship might negatively impact his growing ministry. Whitfield returned from having seen the Edwards and, and deciding that he really would like to marry, told Harris about this, and Harris discerned an amazingly providential solution. He thought these two should get together. So he got Elizabeth and, and uh, Whitfield together. Now, Elizabeth was furious with Harris why she did this, no, no idea, but she corresponded with Whitfield, things developed, and ultimately she agreed to marry him. But her correspondence indicates that it took her at least 10 years of that marriage to get over her love for Hal Harris. Whitfield refused to allow their marriage to alter his bruising travel and preaching schedule, and even on his honeymoon, he preached twice daily. I'm not sure how he lived past that time, but anyway, <laughs> she was Welsh, not Irish, so that's a <laughs> it was unsurprising that the relationship was a disappointing and mostly sad one. She suffered four miscarriages and her only child with Whit Whitfield, a son, died when he was four months old. Whitfield preached three times the morning of the funeral. One wonders how it is possible to be so anointed and so stupid all at the same time. God in his incredible grace uses people who are submitted to him, even with their incredibly clay feet. While these men were incredibly different in some ways, there were also marked similarities. Their love and commitment to God was all-consuming. Their lives of prayer and devotion to God's word are intimidating to read about. Their discipline and work ethic make me feel like a sluggard. Edward studied as a regular part of his routine 13 hours a day. Wesley was itinerant for most of his ministry. He traveled. It's estimated that he rode over 250,000 miles on horseback. That's 10 circuits around the globe, preaching some 42,000 times. He would read as he rode. He read something in the vicinity of 1,200 volumes of theology, all the while writing 50 of his own. Whitfield regularly rose at 4 a.m. and was usually preaching by 5 or 6. 
It's estimated that he preached at least a thousand times a year for 30 years. And I want to tell you, his sermons weren't 10-minute sermonettes. They sometimes lasted two hours. He would spend between 40 and 60 hours in the pulpit per week. That's enough to kill a horse. No wonder some of them, well, Whitfield at least anyway, died young. They were all men of incredible, unquestioned integrity and moral purity. There was no rumors of financial irregularity or moral scandal surrounding any of them, which is probably quite remarkable given their celebrity status and the opportunities that constant travel and time away from home afforded them. As I said to you before, it would take a series of messages to impact, or to unpack rather, the impact that these men had on their time. Most historians will acknowledge, and many have noted, that the reason England never had a revolution like France can be put down to one reason, and that one reason is John Wesley and the Methodist revival that gripped the nation. Out of that move, Wilberforce, the anti-slavery movement, movements with regard, you know, Bernardo's in looking after orphans, um, changes in in employment law and and removing women from mines, nearly all of that came out of this revival. Revivals are nearly always a catalyst for social reform. Friends, there were spiritual giants in the land at that time. In comparison, I feel like, and I think I move among without wanting to offend you, a race of pygmies. Their light shone so bright that when I read of their lives, I'm tempted to despair at the strength of my own until I'm reminded that their light was a borrowed one. Their light was a borrowed one. And the source from which it was borrowed is still available and open to all of those who will come. Elisha hit the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? I'm tempted to try and bring my beach towel down on the ground and say, where is the God of John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards? Lord, their light was borrowed. You gave it to them. Would you give it to us in our day? Because the dark backdrop seems to just be getting darker and more confused. And one of the prayers that I probably most often pray over our nation is, Lord, we have forsaken your laws. It's time for you to act. I'm going to ask if our team would come and um, lead us in a song slash prayer that we opened with when we started this series. It's from the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk is considering what God has done in days gone by as well. And he's saying, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of the great deeds you have done in the days of our fathers. Would you do them again in our time? Would you renew them in our day and our time? So I'm going to invite you to stand and make it your prayer. Lord, in our day, in our time, would you reignite something? That word that Donald brought before about those who are feeling deflated, make it your prayer. Say, God, reanimate me. Breathe into me afresh. Let the flame that perhaps has grown dim burn brightly once again. Let's make it our prayer this morning. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, 
Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.